This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin here once again with Dr. Stan May to explore some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. The first question this week is, who are the four witnesses to Jesus, and what evidence do they offer to confirm who Jesus is? According to Jesus, what prevents people from believing? Walking through John's gospel is such an encouraging journey. John gives us insights into the life of Jesus and to the ministry of Jesus, and especially to the teaching of Jesus that the other three gospels just don't give. We only learn, for example, about the Holy Spirit really at a major way in John's gospel. And in, in the same way, Jesus is discussing with the Pharisees and defending his ministry. They're accusing him of speaking from his own lips. And so he says, no, there are four witnesses that have spoken about me. John the Baptist came and preached about me and pointed people to me. His own teaching and miracles, Jesus said, were evidences, were indicators that God was with him. They could not deny the healing of people, the miracles that Jesus was performing. And then he said, the Father testifies of me. that Though you don't recognize the Father, I do. And he testifies to me because he's been with me. And an interesting thing about Jesus and the Father is that in the Old Testament, the the word Father is used of God in this unique way only about 10 times in the entire Old Testament. It's used in Isaiah, it's used in the Psalms, but it's used infrequently, not, not very often. But Jesus uses this word Father over 200 times in the four Gospels. And Jesus affirms that he has this unique relationship with the Father, and the Father bears witness to him. And then finally he says the Scriptures. He said, you, you think that in the Scriptures you have eternal life, but they testify to me. He's saying, you believe that by keeping the law, that's what that saves you, but the Scriptures are simply pointing to a greater reality. Their role as the Holy Spirit's role, is to point people to Jesus. And so Jesus makes clear that these four witnesses bear witness to him and then turns around and says to the Jews, the reason you don't believe is because you love the praise of men more than you love the praise of God. In other words, belief is not a question of the intellect, but a question of the heart. Amen. Later in John 12, John gives a similar kind of uh, it's not Jesus speaking, but he as the narrator gives gives a commentary on this same sort of thing where he says that there were many who believed, but they didn't speak up because uh, they didn't want to be put out of the synagogues because they love the glory that comes from men, like you Amen. said, them more than the glory that comes from God. Amen. Um, second, according to Jesus, what are the marks of effective prayer? Why should his children not worry? And what promises does he offer to those who seek the kingdom first? It's so fun to listen to Jesus teach on prayer. Prayer in the Old Testament, we read the wonderful prayers of Abraham and they're bold. And we read the prayers of Moses and they're bold. And Jesus unpacks for us prayer because by the time of his day, prayer had moved from bold, frank, intimate discussions with God that dealt with sin honestly and and pled with God to do what only God could do, to rote, 
loud promotions of self. It appeared, I mean, what Jesus said, because he, he's talking about, he said they love to pray standing in the streets, and, which means they're looking for the applause of men when they pray. But Jesus says the marks of real prayer is that you pray to God in private, alone. You bring your needs to God. And you don't just repeat formulaic prayers and expect that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't, you don't just repeat formulaic prayers, but you pray prayers that are heartfelt, that bring your personal needs to God, and that are God in Christ centered. They are focused on God and they come to God through Christ. These types of prayers arise out of our relationship. He says, Our Father. They express praise, hallowed be your name. They seek God's kingdom and God's will and not our own. And this is, this is the mark of real prayer. It is not me-centered. It is God-focused. It is kingdom-focused. And he said, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They bring our needs to God so that when he answers, and this is the reason why we ask God for our daily needs, he gets the glory for the provision, and we stop presuming. They confess sin honestly. Forgive us our debts. We don't pretend that we've not sinned. We confess it honestly when we deal with it. It's a prayer that causes us then to be so overwhelmed by the grace that we've received that we gladly forgive others. And we seek temptation. We see, I mean, we, <laughs> I'm tired. You're going to have to change this. And we seek deliverance from temptation and from the attacks of the enemy. True prayers, Jesus makes clear, are persistent. Keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will the door will be open for you. Jesus promises that when his children and his churches, I think we often don't realize that this verse is a church verse too, that when churches and his children seek his kingdom first, he will take care of everything else they need. Just as Solomon learned when he asked God for wisdom and God gave him everything else besides because he sought the kingdom first. Amen. Amen. Next, what marks of the centurion's faith caused Jesus to be astonished? And how could this example build faith in believers today? The centurion was a proud Roman soldier, a great leader, a respected man, and yet he humbled himself before God. He understood that God works in structures of authority, that just as he, as a Roman soldier, was under authority, and therefore he could exercise authority, he could command soldiers and servants to go, and when he commanded them, they implicitly obeyed. They completely obeyed, so he realized that Jesus was under the Father's authority and therefore exercised divine authority. Jesus could do what he asked him to do because Jesus, under authority, had the power to do that. His humility and his faith that Jesus' power was sufficient were demonstrated by the fact that he said, you don't even have to come. You just speak a word. And that's enough. In the same way, we today have to believe that God's revealed will and word are enough and that we can humble ourselves under the word of God, submit to the will of God, and God will guide our lives and demonstrate his power through us just as the centurion discovered. Amen. Amen. 
we talk a lot about the fact that in the days of Jesus' flesh, he had a spatial limitation. He Just like we, he could only be in one place at one time. But that does not mean that as God, he could not do work where he was not. Amen. Which is incredible. Next, how does Mark define blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And how does Jesus portray religious formalism in the parable of the evil spirit in Matthew 12? Well... Matthew and Mark both record this story about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Mark notes, he said, he told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Mark tells us explicitly that Jesus is rebuking them because they're saying that the work of the Holy Spirit by which Jesus is exercising his power and healing people and casting out demons and performing these mighty miracles that a demon was doing it. That is the essence of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And people who harden themselves in that attitude and thus reject the work of God, harden themselves against God, and are thus excluded from the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus tells this parable of religious formalism, he points out, he says that the, that the demon goes out, and he comes back, and he finds the house swept and clean and empty. Religious formalism can make a change of life. People can stop doing something. They can quit drinking. They can quit smoking. They can quit cussing. They can start going to church. They can put on religious garb and and even assume offices and do many good things. And they can follow rules that do bring change. But unless they experience the new birth and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, that cleaned and swept house is still empty, devoid of God's presence. Religion cannot save or deliver or affect profound, genuine change apart from the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the man. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Next, what do the four soils teach about people's response to the Word of God? How can we ensure that the Word will bring fruit in our lives? As we've both preached this message and unpacked it through the years, we've listened to Jesus teach this and seen how so many times the teaching of Jesus has one interpretation, but so many powerful applications. Jesus teaches that some will not understand the word at all, and the enemy will snatch away from their heart before it ever takes root because the heart is hardened like a path. Some will hear and respond immediately with joy, but the word will not take root because the underlying stool is still hard. Some will take the word in, but other things, the lust and cares and riches of the world, Jesus said, will starve it out. And others will hear and respond to the word, seeing lasting change. and, And that lasting change is true fruit that is both character and a passion for the souls of others. In other words, what Jesus talks about is it will be the fruit of 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 the fruit of the Spirit, which is real change in our lives, but it will also be the fruit of the Holy Spirit working through us in the lives of others. His challenge, anyone who has ears should listen and understand, expresses the the truth that true fruit will come by careful hearing, understanding the teaching, and it will produce a harvest. Now this matters because if you look at Matthew 13 on this passage, In verse 19 and 23, when he unpacks the meaning for his hearers, he says that those who are like the hard ground, the path, 
They hear and don't understand. And in verse 23, those who produce fruit are those who hear and understand. The only difference is understanding. And so for the teacher, it reminds me that I must push toward making clear the understanding of the text so that I remove that, that very serious obstacle to the hearer. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Lastly, what freedom does the garrison demoniac have before he meets Christ, and how does he obtain true freedom? Why does Jesus leave him in the region rather than permitting him to come with him? You know, Jonathan, I penned this question because I love this story so much. I love this story because in, in America today, if you were to pin down anybody and say, tell me what it means to be free, they would say things like, well, you can go wherever you want to go, do whatever you want to do, say whatever you want to say, dress how you want to dress, and the garrison demoniac is the epitome of all of these. He lives where he wants to live. He lives in the tombs. Nobody can tell him what to do. The text says no one can tame him. He wears what he wants to wear. Luke tells us that he's naked. So he's wearing what he wants to wear. He says what he wants to say. He screams day and night. He is the epitome of the American ideal of freedom. But when Jesus meets him and he experiences the mighty power of Jesus in his life, he is set free from that, quote, freedom to a true freedom because when his friends come and his neighbors come and the citizens all show up, there he sits, clothed, perfectly sane, the text says, and fully clothed and in his right mind talking with Jesus, listening to Jesus. He's now submitted to Jesus' authority. He's dressed appropriately and he's at peace in his heart. And those are the marks of real freedom. In fact, He's so free that Jesus no longer has to have him with Jesus. When the crowd pushes Jesus away, he accepts that. He only comes at people's bidding. But he makes it, this man stay because they can't chase one of their own away. And his witness is so profound and powerful. His change is so unique that the citizens of that country, when Jesus comes back, are so ready for him that they bring their sick, they hear his word, and real revival breaks out in the area because of the ministry of the demoniac. Mm. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible.